you know, Scripture teaches that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to the Lord's purpose, those that He loves. And there are times in our lives when sometimes it's difficult to see the good that might come. But we trust in that promise that everything works together for good. This week has been one of those weeks when we have, as a family, been searching for God's goodness in the midst of difficulty. As many of you know, as last Sunday my brother was taken to the hospital. Uh, Some of you may not be aware of that, but he uh, apparently, uh, there are lots of there were lots of questions about him, and let me just begin by giving you an update on his status and ask for your prayers. Uh, Brian is still in the hospital. He went in last week with a, a, a hemorrhage of an artery going into his adrenal gland. Now, apparently that is very, very rare, but that is what they have diagnosed him with. Um, he was they, they patched that on Sunday. Everything seemed to be progressing pretty well Monday and Tuesday, and then early Wednesday morning. He had a major setback, apparently is still bleeding somewhat internally. Uh, Brian is now on a ventilator and has been since Wednesday. Is uh, under sedation, has not been awake since Wednesday. Uh, the doctors tell us that everything is going to be okay. It's just going to take a matter of time. Uh, they're planning on running some tests again today to try to uh, maybe patch. There's still some bleeding going on the remainder of what's bleeding. Uh, he has developed pneumonia in one lung during that time. And so just to let you know, Brian is a guy that is obviously close to me. We're close as brothers. It's just the two of us. He has a one-year-old little girl. Uh, he's been married for, uh, I actually was married before he was, but he's married to a wonderful lady who has been by his side this week. My parents are here, and we just would appreciate your prayers. And it is one of those things that we continue to pray every day as we pray for uh, God to intervene physically in his life. We also pray that God would allow us to see the good that is going to come out of this. We know that it's there. We know that it will because God's Word promises us that. It's just walking through the storm. Sometimes it's difficult to see that. That was an interesting week for us as a family on other fronts. I mean, there are lots of things going on in our lives. My wife right now, as many of you know, my wife's mother is very sick and uh, my brother-in-law, who's a pastor, has taken a new church in the Jackson, Mississippi area, and my wife is with her mom at that church because her mom has waited until she felt good enough. They flew down there this morning, and so we've been dealing with some illness with her mom and also uh, with that trip. We registered Eli for kindergarten on Friday. We are still looking for the good in that. And then, as many of you know, we've been praying for months now for our house. And on Monday, in the midst of everything going on with Brian, we got our first offer. And I told, her, I told Susan, Susan just looked at me while she was on the phone with the agent and said, I think we have an offer. I said, take it. I don't care. I don't care what it is. So we have officially a contract on our house in Ripley. And so we are excited about that. And we appreciate your prayers there. We believe that part of, you know, they say it just takes one. That's what they always say. But we're glad that one decided to come and come along now. We think they took their time. Uh, <laughs> but we're glad they're there. And so keep praying for that. As, as we say, we're not, uh, we're, you know, it's never over until they've got the title and we got the money. And so we are, well, actually the bank has the money, but we, it's not over till then. So we just ask you to continue praying for that. But, 
because of us selling a house and buying a house and all of that, we've been real involved with real estate this year. And as you know, being involved in real estate this year has been an important thing because it's everywhere talking about it and it's kind of in a slowdown. Apparently in some parts of the world it's slowed down a little bit. Uh, I don't know that it was ever sped up in Ripley, but it's slowed down there as well. <laughs> and what you discover in sometimes in real estate, now not with our agents, we had wonderful agents both selling our house and looking here. Uh, the one that helped us to find one here is here today, and I don't want her to be mad at me. She was great. She really was. But you discover that sometimes things that real estate ads say isn't actually reality. For instance, if you read in an ad that a house is described as nestled, that probably means it's cramped. If it says it's cute, it means it's only something a mother could love. If it's charming, it needs repair. If it's quaint, it's tiny. If it's spacious, it's even tinier. If it says it's airy, that means the north wind blows through the cracked windows. If it says you must see to appreciate, it means it has been condemned recently. If it's simple, it's a lean-to. If it's conveniently located, it means you must share your driveway with three other neighbors on the busiest street in town. If it means it says you're in view of a water, that probably means that your neighbor has a backed-up septic tank. And if it says that it's well-lit, it means that every night at 11.30, the police helicopter does its nightly flyby with a high-powered searchlight. Perception is not always reality. But over the last few weeks, we've been talking about improving our homes and how we do that. And sometimes our perception of what makes homes work isn't reality. Sometimes you'll look at a family or you'll look at a marriage and you'll think, boy, they have just got it all together. And if it's a successful marriage, you may think, well, it's just the chemistry that is involved there. Or maybe it's the environment that they find themselves in. And we try to come up with ways that they have come about to make this marriage, this family successful. And the truth is, there is something that makes all marriages that are great, great. Today, I'm going to give you the secret of what makes all marriages that are great, great. And it's one little word, and it's called commitment. I came across this quote this week, and I think it's an interesting quote because it shows us how intense this commitment has to be. It says, marriage, it's on your handout, it'll be on the screen, requires a radical commitment to love our spouses as they are, while longing for them to become what they are not yet. Every marriage moves either toward enhancing one another's glory or toward degrading each other. What I like about that quote is, first of all, it says it is a radical commitment. I mean, if you think about it, when you stand before the minister and you are standing side by side and you're talking to one another and you say those words for better or for worse and richer and poor and sickness and in health, the reality is you are making a commitment to another person that you have no idea what is coming. It is a radical commitment. For instance, I mentioned we have a contract. When we signed the contract this week, we had 14 pages that explained exactly what our commitment was. 
It told us exactly what was going to happen. It walked us through the process. We initialed pages. We signed places. There was one part we weren't happy with. We sent back a change. They had to initial and sign. It's a commitment of knowing what is there. Marriage is a radical commitment because you don't know what is coming. My sister-in-law, Rebecca, was talking about last Saturday night. They had been to the mall. They had eaten lunch together. It had been one of those days. My brother's been working on some cases, just just terribly stressful, been away a lot. It was one of those days she said they were, she was sitting in bed at night and she thought, I don't know that it gets much better than this. It's unbelievable how happy we are. And at 2 o'clock that morning, she was rushing her husband, my brother, to the emergency room. I don't know what tomorrow brings. And yet, part of my commitment to Susan is whatever tomorrow brings, I'm there. Her commitment to me is whatever tomorrow brings, we're there. It's a radical commitment to love our spouses as they are while longing for them to become what they are not yet. Now let me just say, let me, let me clarify that statement. They're not saying there that you're longing for them to become what you want them to become. You get that? Here's one thing. Most people go into marriages thinking there are a few things I can change about the other person. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about how God is shaping them into the people they will be. And it says that we're to love them as they are, just as they are. While longing for them to become what they're not yet. Here's the thing. What that describes is exactly the way God loves us. He loves us just as we are. Right? We're Baptists. We know that song. Just as I am without one plea, without thou blood was shed for me. And thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am. And He loves us that way, but He loves us knowing what we're going to become in the future. And that's what commitment is about. I want you to turn to kind of a strange place to talk about commitment in marriage, but we're going to talk about commitment in general today, because it is such a word that has lost our society to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And we're going to talk about verses 25 through 33, where Jesus is telling people about the cost of being a disciple. Now, as a background of this, you have to think about and just write at the top somewhere, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has three people come to him and say, I'd like to follow you, but... I wish I could follow you, but... And Jesus basically says, you can't follow me if you've got any accepts or buts or maybe laters, or howevers. There's, there's none of that. In chapter 9, it, it, this person comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, but I don't even have a home. And he goes up to another guy and he says, follow me. And the guy says, let me go bury my father. And he says, don't go bury your father. Come follow me. Another comes up and says, I will go with you, Lord, but let me first go say goodbye to my family. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service. He says, it's complete commitment that I need. And in chapter 14, he's going to go through that again and show us what commitment is all about. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, this is the thing I love about Jesus, is that we live in a world where everybody tries to be politically correct. Correct? Right? 
I saw that, you know, all, I followed the presidential nomination stuff and all of that, and nobody wants to say anything even remotely considered politically incorrect. They get a big group of followers, they don't want to say anything to distance him. Jesus, on purpose, said politically incorrect things. Just to get people to leave. He looked at them. Sometimes there's a place in John 6 where he says, listen, if you're going to be my follower, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. You don't want to do that? Leave. And it says that a lot of them left that day. And he turns to the disciples and says, what about y'all? Y'all want to go too? Verse 25, he says, large crowds are traveling. Large crowds, huge crowds. He's building his ministry. And it's this whole ebb and flow. Building the ministry, running some away. Building them and running them away. Verse 26, he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here's the first thing we learn from this passage of Scripture is that commitment requires total commitment. 100% commitment. What he says is, listen, if I'm secondary, if following me is secondary, now here's where this is important in marriage, and we're going to talk about this a little more in detail in a minute, is that if you don't have God first, Christ first in your life, and then your marriage is going to suffer. And what he says is, if you don't hate those people, we'll talk about the, the, the force of that word in a second, but the truth is, what he's saying here is, this isn't a sort of kind of commitment. This isn't a yes, but commitment. This isn't a commitment where I look and I say, well, I will if. This is a 100% completely devoted, passionately devoted, 100% I'm following you. Now, you know, sometimes God uses strange methods to reinforce his truce. Recently, a couple of weeks ago, I took Eli to see a movie. Now, as you can imagine, when I take Eli to see a movie, most of the times we're not going to movies that I would choose to see on my own. And I don't know that I've ever taken Eli to a movie that has actual live people in the movie. And so a couple of weeks ago, we went to see a movie called Horton Hears a Who. And Horton Hears a Who is based on a book by Dr. Seuss. And in this story, Horton is an elephant. And while he is out one day, he hears flying by a flower, and on the flower he thinks he hears a voice from a speck on the flower. Now, I could, you know, the reality is, and y'all don't want to hear this, but I'll tell you anyways, I could do a sermon series on Horton Hears a Who after that movie. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Maybe we will someday. We'll just watch the movie. That'll be the sermon. <laughs> and he hears this voice. And so he captures this, this speck on the flower. And he's making sure he carries it and holds it, protects it. Well, as you can imagine, there are some people in the animal community around him that don't think there's actually anybody living on the speck on the flower. And they begin to question his sanity. And they begin to say, all you have to do is to give up. Don't tell the children about the flower. Don't tell the people about the flower. Just give up. The, the particular villain in this story is a kangaroo. Played by Carol Burnett. And the kangaroo is just adamant that you can't, there's nobody on there. There's no such thing as a who. There's none of that. You've just got to get rid of it. Well, he didn't get rid of it. 
And there becomes a particular moment of decision for Horton. Because as this elephant, one of his friends comes to him and tells him that the kangaroo is about to take serious action against him. And he's got a decision to make. I want you to watch as he makes that decision. Horton! Don't! There you are! We got trouble! Wait, stay, wait. Can you hear that? No, I'm here. Okay, listen, no, go. Kangaroo has gone nuts. Bananas. She's telling everyone that you should be kicked out of Newell. She said that? I thought we were friends. Word is, she's gone to Vlad. 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 I know two Vlads. Is it the bad Vlad or the bunny Vlad that makes the cookies? Yeah, Horton. She's sending you a bunny with cookies. I think we can assume it's the bad Vlad. Yeah, that's a good call. So, unless you're cool with giant razor-sharp claws ripping the flesh off your body, I get rid of the clover. I can't. I promised the mayor. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. And an elephant's faithful 100%. Please, for me, just this once, be faithful 99% of the time. I've never got 99% on anything. I think I'm awesome. So come on. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. I'm not going to say it. You can do that all day. It's not happening. An elephant's faithful 100%. That's right. That's my code. My motto. Thanks for the warning. The thing is that he says, I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. An elephant's faithful 100%. Commitment is not a 99% kind of thing. It's 100%. All the time, in every way. He says here that there were large crowds traveling, and he says, if you come after me, you must hate father, mother, wife, children. Now, what he's saying there is not that we should literally hate everybody. What he's saying there is, it's hyperbole that Jesus uses to say in relationship to how much we care about Him, our love for everybody else ought to be small. Or seem like hate. Now here's the thing. If we're going to be committed, it requires total commitment. And it requires total commitment first. And this is for our marriage sake to God. The first commitment that we have to have is we have to have total commitment to God. As I've shared with you before, we had a difficult time having children. It was not an easy thing. Doctors told us we had no chance on our own, um, that there, there would be medical things that would have to happen. We just were told we couldn't have children. And we went through with Eli some medical things and went to doctors. And I remember on the night before we were supposed to find out what was going on, if we were going to have a child or not, I remember driving in the car and I was by myself. And the song came on the radio, uh, modern praise and worship chorus called Here I Am to Worship. We've sung it here. And I remember for some reason the, the, song, uh, the, the story that came from Scripture in my mind was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that story? Fiery furnace. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faithful to God. And the king says, bow down to this image. And they say, we will not bow down. He says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. They says, you do what you've got to do, but we will not bow down. And then they say this interesting thing to the king. They say, listen, you throw us in the furnace. We serve a God that is able, if he is willing, to deliver us from the furnace. And we will come out of that furnace alive. But if we do not, we will still not bow. And I remember the night before finding out whether we were going to have uh, Eli as a child, whether we were going to find out if we were going to have a child, I, I remember driving and that song, Here I Am to Worship, and God just saying to me in my soul, Do you love me more than this child that may come? Do you love me more than Susan, your wife? And this is what I said to the Lord. I said, Lord, you know that I greatly desire to have a child. But if we find out tomorrow that that's not the case, I will worship you regardless. And in that car, and you would not have wanted to have been there because you wouldn't have thought the singing was very good, but God didn't care. I just began to sing at the top of my lungs, Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you are my God. Years later, we had Eli. Doctor still told us that we couldn't have any on our own. Zero percent chance. And one night, Susan and I are driving. And we're talking about the fact that, that Eli may be the only child that we ever have and whether we're okay with that. Susan had always wanted uh, a large family. Um, to me, that meant two. Uh, she wanted a few more than two, and I always thought two would have been a good number. It's amazing how however many people you have in your family, you think that's a good number for the next for your own family. And we were talking about, you know, what happens. And it became, a, you know, some of you have been through that before where you didn't know if you were able to have children. You've walked through that. And it can become a consuming thing. And I remember driving one night, and Susan, I had preached a sermon two weeks earlier on Abraham and Isaac. You know Abraham and Isaac. The story where Abraham is called by God. They have the son when he's late 90s. And then God says, go sacrifice him. And Abraham takes him up. And while he's getting ready to sacrifice him, God says, stop, don't sacrifice the boy. And I'd preach the sermon out of the notes, out of the commentaries and all those kind of things. And as we were going, as we were driving one night from Dyersburg back to Ripley, Susan just looked at me and says, you know what, your sermon two weeks ago really spoke to me. And I said, it did. And she said, yeah. I said, God just kind of said to me, am I enough if you never have another child? And we both talked about it. And we said, listen, our family is the most precious thing on this earth to us. My wife is the most precious thing. When I said at, my, at the altar when I married her that I forsake all others and that that relationship was primary, I meant it. But in that moment, we realized that our relationship to God was, of course, most important. Now, God blessed us with another child. We don't know if God will bless us with another one. But the point is that your commitment to God is the first and most important commitment you will have in any relationship at all. But the second total commitment you've got to have is to your family. You've got to be committed to them. You've got to say that you're going to forsake all others, that that unit is important. 
You know, sometimes we don't realize how important family is to us until something happens. Like what's happened with my brother this week. When Brian took a turn for the worst Wednesday morning, I was there as soon as I could be. My sister-in-law was there. Her mother was there. My parents who had driven home Tuesday night, three hours, got back in the car after no sleep and came back the next day. You just were there because that's what you're supposed to do. But it's not just because what you're supposed to do. It's because you want to be there because of the love and care you have. And one of the reasons that we have difficulty in America with this whole idea of marriage and family today is because when people give commitments at the altar in their lives, they don't mean what they think or what they don't mean what they're saying. And commitment means no matter what. First step in understanding commitment is to realize that it is a total commitment, 100%. Here's the second thing. It requires cost counting. Cost counting. I've shopped at Walmart too much. I'm going to say cost cutting. Cost counting. Verse 27 and following. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, let's talk for just a minute. What does the cross represent? Who were people carrying the crosses? Where were they going? That's good. Somebody else. Where were they going? To be crucified. What happened when you got crucified? You died. Let's think. Is that a big cost? That's big, right? That's the biggest you can give with your life. What he says is, you've got to realize this is not a, a, a small commitment. This is signing your life away. People joke sometimes when they sign contracts or commitments that they're signing their life away. When you sign up, when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you are going to do what He's called you to do, you are signing your life away. But it's not just saying, you know what, okay, that's fine, I'll do it no matter what comes. Verse 28 tells us, we've got to know what's coming. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down to estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Will you not count the cost? The word there for count is an interesting word. It is the word pebble. Or will you not count like you count pebbles? Will you not count every little bit? Will you not look at every detail you can find to find exactly what it's going to cost to go forward? Part of the problems in commitments and marriages today is that before people jump into marriage, they don't think about the costs that are going to be involved. Part of the problem with people that are in the church today that are as committed to Christ as they ought to be is when they get to that point where they ask Jesus to come into their life, they don't think about the cost that is involved. The reality is we must always count the cost. If I were to come in here today and say, listen, I've got a great idea. We've got a building that we've got to build out back in that parking lot. And it's going to make us grow to unbelievable things. We've got to start building it next week. Well, pastor, how much is it going to cost? I don't know, but we've got to start building. Do you have an estimate? I don't have an idea. Just vote yes. All of you would say, that sounds good to me. Let's go. And here's what I need you to do. In order to make that come true, I'm going to have every one of you just sign a blank check and give it to me. And when we figure out the cost, we'll just divide it evenly among the congregation and write that amount in for you. 
Now, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? If you don't think so, let's go right now. Let's, I mean, you're not, you're not act, reacting very well. Just if you want to do that, go ahead. Offering plate will be by in a few minutes. The truth is that we always count the cost, except when we're making sometimes the biggest commitments of our lives. It requires counting the cost. Now, here's the second thing that goes right through that. It's once you count the cost and once you enter, you've got to finish the work. Look what it says in verse 29. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Now, it's interesting. That word ridicule there means to play like a child or to gesture like a child or to call names like children do. In my experience working with preschoolers, I can tell you that some of the most cruel creatures on this earth can be preschoolers with their friends. They can say words to just tear someone down. And he says, listen, if you start something and you don't finish it, if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will say, look at them. They began to build and were not able to finish. Have you been to downtown Nashville lately? few cranes around, right? few holes in the ground. Buildings are starting to come up. Here's the thing. Some of those buildings are projected to be major, major structures. And there are planning commissions that have been done. There have been things pre-sold. Now, can you imagine if 20 years from now, all that you see when you went by those spots were still just the holes in the ground? And what people would say about the person building that building. You remember when they had all those great ideas? Look what happened. Can't even get it out of the ground. It become a joke. And what he says is when you commit to something and you can't finish it, then what you're doing is you are bringing ridicule upon yourselves. Now here's the thing. We live in a society where commitments aren't taken seriously and the work is rarely finished. Every year we have 5,000 children in America that are abandoned by their parents. 30% of children grow up in single-parent homes. And some of you in this room are single parents. And let me say, I, I admire you for what you do. It is unbelievable to me how anyone could raise children on their own. But the truth is that as a result of single-parent homes, what often happens is the reason they're single-parent homes is because somebody's given up on their responsibility and commitment. We have latchkey kids all around that come home to empty houses for sometimes hours because both parents think it's more important to get out and make a lot of money than to be home with their children. We've got to learn to finish the work. Now here's the thing. It's not just about the ridicule that comes from others. It's about our commitment to God. You know when I begin a wedding, I always say this line at the beginning, but I don't think most of the people that are getting married hear me say it. The truth is, most people that are getting married don't hear most of what's going on in the ceremony. It's kind of a blur. But one of the first things you say is, we are gathered here today before these witnesses and God. To have them declare today their vows to one another before God in this place of worship. Here's the truth. When you make those vows to each other, you're making a vow to God. 
And look what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to Him. It is better to say nothing to make a promise and not keep it. Here's the thing. We have to come to the realization and understanding that those are serious commitments. And that if your family, whether it's a family that has been broken and you're trying to figure out how to make it the best you can, if you're a family that is struggling in a marriage right now and you're trying to figure out how to make it work, if you're a family and you're just beginning this process and you're wanting to make sure that you install the security system and make sure it works, you've got to commit to finishing the work. Here's the thing, when we don't, it affects so many people. I realize that this is one of the tough things about doing a series on the family. Is there are all kinds of families in this room. There are all kinds of situations in this room. And some of you are in a situation where you, are in, you have been recently divorced or you've gotten a divorce and you're in the midst of dealing with the way God loves you through that. And let me tell you again, God loves you in the midst of whatever's happening. But it would be remiss of me as a pastor to not mention what God's Word says about the damage that can be done. I was having lunch with a friend recently. A guy that I've known for a long time. And when, I was, when he was in high school, his parents got a divorce. They were... What everybody thought was a great family. I grew up spending the night at his house. He spent the night at mine. Great family. Irreconcilable differences happened when he was in high school and his family split up. And We were just talking about going back to Dyersburg every now and then. Nothing big. He just looked at me and says, You know what? He said, well, What happens oftentimes is after a divorce, the parents move on, but the kids never can. I want to tell you that he wasn't saying that from a bitter heart. I know him. He's committed to Christ. He's committed to loving the Lord. But his point was that he's still dealing with those ramifications. And I'll say this to you. If you're a family here today, and I don't know what's happening in your families. I don't know what's happening in your marriages. I don't know any of that. But if you're a family here today and your marriage is in trouble or that word has even come into your vocabulary, the D word, let me just ask you to seriously work to finish. To do what God has called you to do. Now, I know there are some circumstances, and Scripture would allow for this, where one partner or the other leaves and won't reconcile, and there's nothing you can do about it. But if you're both committed to Christ, if you're both trying to live for Him, do everything you can to keep it together. Here's the fourth thing. That commitment requires paying the price. If you are going to put the security system on your marriage and make sure everything's protected, that means you pay the price, whatever it means for your family. Yesterday was the NFL draft and we as a culture worship NFL players. Like it or not, we do. There was one particular guy that I was never really particularly fond of when he played, but read a story about him this week that I thought was amazing. A guy named Chris Spielman, who I think was a linebacker for the Ohio State Buckeyes and then played for Detroit Lions and was one of the toughest guys you could find, a linebacker, football player. He'd get hit, get hurt, and he'd play through it. In fact, one year in the late 90s, he played all year with a pretty severe injury because he could not let his teammates down. 
He made it through that year. They had a semi-successful season. He was a pillar of that defense. They got ready to start the next year. And towards the beginning of the year, he announced he would not be playing that year. People began to probe and question because you can't just say that. You've got a contract. What's going on? What are you doing? And as they probed and questioned, they found out that his wife had developed breast cancer and was going to have a serious battle with that through the year. And Chris Spielman announced when all that came out that he was taking the year off to take care of his wife. Now, of course, the media didn't like that answer. Aren't you letting your teammates down? And he said to them, listen, if I let my teammates down, it is a tragic thing. But if I let my wife down, that's inexcusable. And commitment means paying the price, no matter what that means. I'll give you four steps today to make sure that your life has the security system installed. Your marriage, your family has the security system activated. First of all, consecrate your marriage. That's a word we don't use a lot today, but that means to set apart for the purpose of God. Saying this is a place God is going to work, God is going to live. That means confessing whatever needs to be confessed. That means asking forgiveness, whatever needs to be asked forgiveness. That means going to your spouse, going to your children, going to your family and saying to them, this is something serious we're going to talk about and live through. We're going to do this. One of the things that's going to be a temptation for some of you in this room is that God is going to prick your heart about your own relationships, about your own family, about your own marriage. And the thing that Satan is going to do is just say, just work on that on your own. Don't ever let your wife or your husband know about that. Don't tell them to your family. The truth is that this is one of those things that you need to say, listen, this is what God is saying to me, and I believe that we can have a great marriage, and there are some things that we need to do in order to see that happen. Make it a holy place. People have said, there's actually a book called Sacred Marriage, that God intends to make us holy through our marriages. Now listen, that's an important thing. I don't think God ever intended to make us happy through our marriages. And that's not an appropriate place for an amen, by the way. Now there is happiness and joy that comes, but God's first priority is not to make us happy in marriage, it's to make us holy in marriage. Because there is no better lab for learning forgiveness and communication and love unconditionally than marriage. The second thing is we need to communicate. You need to talk about it in your family. You're sitting around the table and your son or daughter has committed to go through a program and they decide in the middle of it they want to quit. I remember one time there was something, and I don't even remember what it was I wanted to quit, but I wanted to quit. And I remember telling my mom and dad, I want to quit. And my parents says, we don't quit. Now, if you don't want to do it next year, we won't do it next year. But you're going to do it this year. You committed to it. You signed on. You're going to do it. Now, when you get to the next year, you can make a decision. But as a family, we don't quit. You know what that communicated to me? We don't quit. Y'all are looking for a deep answer there. Communicate. Talk about it. Here's the third thing. Cooperate. Work together. Ask for help. Do it as a team, not as an individual. And here's the last thing. Go to Christ. This is not a try-at-home kind of thing. It's like those old TV shows where they do an unbelievably dangerous skit and then, or stunt and then say, don't try this at home. Don't try commitment on your own at home. It is something that only comes 
through a relationship with Christ. And only through living for Him. Jesus says about paying the price in verse 31. Suppose a king is going to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. What he says there is, listen, you've got to be willing to pay the price. You look across the field, you realize what's going. You count the cost, you say, I'm going to finish. And then when difficulty comes, you pay the price. You know, the truth is there are a lot of people that say, I will be with you in richer or poorer sickness and health. And they are until sickness or poorer comes. But commitment says, I'll pay the price. I want to close with this story about what commitment really looks like. It's a story of two people, Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin. And Dr. McQuilkin, Robertson, was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary for 22 years. As often the case during those times, Muriel just backed him up on the home front, served him in many ways as the president's wife, always there to take care of him. They were very effective together. Gradually, Muriel's health started to deteriorate, and tests confirmed that she had Alzheimer's disease. Robertson had to begin to take care of her. He became more responsible for basic needs, feeding, bathing, dressing. Muriel's reasoning skills were lost. She slurred her words. As he began to realize what's going on, Robertson realized a decision came. And was that that he could put Muriel in an institution, continue on at the college as he had committed to, or could he go home and stay with his wife? That's what Dr. McQuilkin said. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part. McQuilkins decided that he would leave that position, that he would resign and that he would go home and take care of her. Some people ask him whether it was a tough decision or a grim duty and he responded by saying, this was no grim duty to which I was stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. And now it was just simply my turn. And man, was she a partner for those 40 years. The reality is, if I took care of her for the next 40 years, I would never be out of my debt to her. And for the rest of her life, Robertson McQuilkin took care of his wife. As a pastor, there are days when the Lord just speaks to me in amazing ways through the people of our congregation. And I want to tell you that there is not a situation that He speaks to me more than when I walk into a hospital room or a nursing home room where there is a couple that have been married for 40, 50, 60 years and one of them has fought on really hard times and to see the other just sitting there. I told you that I admire my grandfather, Gramps, as much as any human being. And part of that comes from the fact that my grandmother had Alzheimer's and rheumatoid arthritis. And for the last three years of her life, she was ornery. She was hard to get along with. She didn't remember anything. And she had to be taken care of. And he made the most difficult decision of his life when he put her into a nursing home 
But this is what I remember. He retired, and every time I went to that nursing home, sitting in a chair without a television or a radio or anything on, was my grandfather just sitting. That is commitment. And here's the thing. When you stand before a minister on a day and you're saying your I do's, we have to realize that commitment means that if that's where it leads me, that's where I'm going. No matter what. Some of you in this room today have never come to a place when you've ever given your life to the Lord. Let me tell you, it's not easy. And I think I've said today, it is a signing away your life. But let me tell you, there is nothing in this world that compares with knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. And some of you in this room need to do that right now today. Some of you need to come and say, this commitment you're talking about, I don't have that to the Lord. I've never asked Him to be my Savior, and today I want to do that. Some of you in this room, you've done that before. Maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was recently, but when you hear talk about 100% commitment, you think in the last few months it's been more like 50% commitment. It's been more like 70% commitment. It's been more like 5% commitment. I haven't been committed to the Lord. And because of what He's done for me, I need to follow Him completely. Some of you in this room are in marriages or in families that are just struggling a little bit. This morning, you need to make a recommitment to the Lord and to your family. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I know this. If He's speaking to your heart, The only appropriate response is yes, Lord.